um, that was my daughter that was crying, and um, if you could pray for her, she needs to be saved. <laughs> my, uh, I invite everyone to open their Bibles to Mark chapter 6. Uh, I, let's give a round of applause to our, our band this morning. They did an awesome job. Um, it, I, it's kind of been loosely referred to as our youth band, but there's like one or two youth actually in there. So I, don't, I we need to figure out a new name, new name for that band. Um, and uh, I'm, I'm, I'm Pastor Willis. I'm the associate pastor here. Our lead pastor, Doug, is uh, taking some much-needed R&R, and uh, our other, our worship pastor is down in New Orleans for the Southern Baptist Convention. Uh, pray for Nathan, because um, uh, he'll need it. Yes, we're in Mark chapter 6. We're going to take a break. We've been in a series in, uh, going through Jeremiah, and we're going to take a, a little bit of a break today from Jeremiah. We're going to be in Mark chapter 6, Mark chapter 6, verses 14 to 44. I remember the first time that uh, I got my first pair of Oakley sunglasses. You guys know Oakleys, right? Um, they're overpriced, stylish sunglasses. Yes, they are overpriced. Um, but boy, as a kid, those things are cool. You know, you could get like blue lenses if you want. You could get orange lenses, green lenses. They, you could get smaller ones, big ones. I mean, those things were awesome. And my first pair were actually free because uh, I had a friend who went down to Mexico and he got a pair for me, and he's so generous. He bought a pair of Oakleys for me in Mexico and gave them to me. They were fake, okay? Yeah, it's, you, yeah you don't. They, and I, I thought I was cool, man. I thought I could fake some people out, but I couldn't. I actually did an internet search of some of the most counterfeited items in the world. And so pharmaceutical drugs is a big one. This is especially true in uh, poorer countries. Movies is another one, uh, counterfeit movies. I, I guess that's what we might refer to as bootlegging, but I don't know what the, the proper um, uh, slang is for that today. I, I honestly, I can't remember if I've ever seen a bootleg movie. I think I've seen once or twice. If you were for the FBI, I'm going to plead the fifth on that. Sneakers and shoes is another one. Um, I had a pair of Nikes that I got from a market in China, um, yeah, for about 10 bucks, and they lasted about a year. Jewelry and watches is another one. And then the number one thing that appeared on many lists was designer handbags, purses, and wallets. So if you walk in here with Dolce & Cabana or Prada or Louis Vuitton, we know where that's really from. I'm, I'm, it's just a joke, okay? If you, wanna, if you want that stuff, that's fine. Counter, counterfeits are everywhere. And more and more, right, we, we have counterfeit social media profiles, right? I had a fake Phil Dassel send me a Facebook message the other day. And I didn't message him back, and, and I was like, Phil, I'm sorry I didn't reply to your message. And he said, well, that wasn't me, so I'm glad I didn't. Uh, but all kinds of people will use uh, fake counterfeit social media profiles to bully people, spread misinformation, division. Counterfeits can be deadly serious. In this chapter of Mark, in Mark chapter 6, we're introduced to a counterfeit, a counterfeit king. This counterfeit king is actually set in, in contrast to the one true heavenly king. And these two kings represent two ways of living in the world. The way of the earth and the way of heaven. The way of earth is counterfeit and empty 
a shell, the way of, of heaven is real and abundant. And this, pa- this passage that we're in, I'm, I'm going to highlight four different contrasts between them. And these contrasts expose the tyranny of the worldly. And at the same time, the satisfaction of the heavenly. So I invite you to uh, go to God's word with me in Mark chapter 6. We're going to start reading in verse 14. King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said he is Elijah, and others said he is a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I have beheaded, has been raised. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death, but she could not. For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. But an opportunity came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, Ask me for whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, Whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, For what should I ask? And she said, The head of John the Baptist. And she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry, but because of his oaths at his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl, and the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. Now many saw them going and recognized them, and they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the hour is now late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered them, you give them something to eat. And they said to him, Shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? And he said to them, How many loaves do you have? Go and see. When they had found out, they said, Five and two fish. Then he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up twelve baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish. And those who ate the loaves were five thousand men. There is the way of, of King Herod or the way of King Jesus. The way of earth or the way of heaven. And so the first contrast that we see here is depletion versus rest. Depletion versus rest. 
when we first start this passage in, in verse 14, Jesus has just sent out his disciples. He's given them authority to cast out demons, perform miracles, and preach the gospel. And so one of the central themes of this section in Mark is this question, what does it look like to follow Jesus? And it's when Jesus sends his disciples out that we kind of come to a pause in the story, a, a break, a change of scene. Jesus sends his disciples out, you know, pretend like you're watching The Chosen. Jesus sends them out, next screen is, is Herod. And it's the scene of a very paranoid king. People are talking about Jesus. He's going out, and, and his disciples are going out, and word is spreading about him. People are talking about him, trying to figure out who he is. And Herod hears of it, and he chooses the most paranoid of the options. John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. Herod's got a guilty conscience. But we'll get to that, because first we have to learn why. Why is Herod so worked up about this? As it turns out, the whole reason that, that Herod had anything to do with John in the first place was because John was preaching against his marriage. Herod had decided he liked his own brother's wife, so he took her and married her. Here's a man who get, goes and gets what he wants. Now, I've known a married couple named Sandra and Andra, but I've never met a Greg or a Gregina or a Craig or a Craigette, but here we have a Herod and a Her Herodias. Isn't that awesome? Power couple. And Herodias, or Herodias, however you want to say it, I'm going to say Herodias, did not like what John was saying. And, and we read, and we read that in verse 19, Herodias had a grudge against him. So on the one hand, you have Herod. You have a guy who goes and gets what he wants. He has power and he knows how to use it. On the other hand, his wife who is someone who absolutely hates it when, when things aren't going her way. True power couple. The world must revolve around the Herods. The Bible is actually a, a really good psychological manual. Like The Bible is pointing out things about human nature that, that we didn't realize or point out un, until much later. Because people who act like this always have deep insecurities. People don't act like this when they're in a secure place or in a safe place. And these are on display here. Herod, an illegitimate king with a wife and an illegitimate marriage. And you can see Herod's insecurities play out here. Look, Herodias couldn't put John to death because, now look at, look at how ironic this is. Herod's the king, but, but Herod feared John. Verse 20, for Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. It's not really a favorable picture of Herod here. See, because he listened. He liked to listen to John, but he never, he never acted. And he just liked to listen to him. He, he wanted the comfort of, of all of this without the commitment. He liked living in his own controlled world without having to act on any responsibility. What I'm, I'm trying to highlight about Herod and, 
Herodias is that in different ways, both Herod and Herodias consume, use, and abuse for themselves. That's all they're interested in. Herod's not interested in John's message. He just likes to watch him perform. We get this same picture of, of Herod in the, in the Gospel of Luke, right? Uh, they send Jesus to, to go to Herod, and, and Jesus is before Herod, and, and all Herod wants him to do is perform a miracle. Just perform for me. But Jesus doesn't. Their lives are turned completely inward. Their, their, their lives are like black holes that, that, that just bring in everything around them into themselves. It's ironic, or maybe not, that the wife Herod so badly wanted is just as selfish as he is. Their phony marriage is a picture of their phony kingship. The tyranny of worldliness is when we turn so inward, we not only make ourselves miserable, but we make everyone around us miserable too. C.S. Lewis wrote in Mere Christianity, And your natural self, which is thus being starved and hampered and worried at every turn, will get angrier and angrier. In the end, you'll either give up trying to be good, or else become one of those people who, as they say, live for others, but always in a discontented, grumbling way. Always wondering why the others do not notice it more, and always making a martyr of yourself. A life like this depletes rather than fills. No matter how many acts of service might be done, an inward life always depletes, never fills. It takes and consumes without investment and without sacrifice. Without responsibility or commitment. We have a huge problem of this in our culture. Consumerism. It infects everything we do. On the other hand, there is another king. He does not deplete, but fills. So he... Jesus sends his disciples out, right? He sends them on a mission. Go and, and perform these miracles, cast out demons. And then in verse, verse 30, the apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going and they had no leisure even to eat. I think all in that verse we have the paradox of the Christian life. They were serving so many people that they couldn't even stop to eat for themselves. All of you know what it means to be hangry. Right? Snickers, you're not you when you're hungry. That's usually us around 11.35, 11.45. But Jesus, Jesus says, in the midst of that, he says, come and rest a while. Dane Ortland wrote in his book, Gentle and Lowly, his yoke is kind and his, his burden is light. That is, his yoke is a, a non-yoke and his burden is a, a non-burden. What helium does to a balloon, Jesus' yoke does to his followers. The demands of following Jesus are high and costly. But they always lead to rest. The desires of worldliness will only deplete. It is a tyranny. 
This leads to the second contrast. Exploitation versus nourishing. A very important event happens in Herod's life, and he wants to celebrate it with a birthday party. Now, I don't have anything against birthday parties. On my birthday, I love having a pizza party. Okay, I'm still a 10-year-old at heart. Like, give me all the pizza. I even think John Piper, right? You know John Piper at all. Like, I think he's like, he, I think he's even said, like, birthdays are, like, completely selfish. Even he will go and get a Butterfinger blizzard on his birthday. And he says, enjoy every bite to the glory of God. Right? But this, this is so, this is meant to emphasize how vain Herod is. Right? There's suffering all around him. And, and yeah, he's in his palace, but he hears all these reports. Like we just read. He's heard all these reports of, of pe- sick people being healed and blind people receiving their sight and demons being cast all around him. Rare is the person in power who is unconcerned with self-grandeur. Herod he invites all his friends. I want to celebrate my birthday. So he invites his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. Oh, oh wait, this isn't just a birthday party. It's a, it's a very serious birthday party for very serious men. Uh, our culture likes to put certain groups in the crosshairs of who it hates most. And I'm sorry to say to many of you that if you are an old white man... You're not, you're pretty despicable right now, all right? Nothing you can do about it. You can't choose it, can't stay young forever. Um, there was an episode of a TV show I watched recently where, of course, the, the rich, money-greedy men were all these old white dudes. And, and don't get me wrong, there are a lot of greedy old white men who occupy a lot of powerful positions, But here's something I've learned, especially in our study of of Jeremiah. Where there is moral sin in a culture, there is also societal corruption. Sin is never just a self-contained moral bad. Where sin flourishes, societal corruption is inevitable. They go hand in hand. So, for example, in Jeremiah 5.28, we read, Their evil deeds have no limits. They do not plead the case of the fatherless. They do not defend the rights of the poor. See, they will do this. They do these evil deeds. Therefore, they do not plead the cause of the fatherless or the orphan. Moral sin always breeds societal corruption. One thing that drives me crazy right now is more and more I hear uh, uh, people arguing for the legitimacy of, of sex work. By which people mean prostitution, we just have to put a better label on it. As in, as in sex work should be a legitimate way to make a career and make a living. But sex work and female dignity are at odds. No matter how polished you make it, or how legitimate you try to make it, it will always, always, always lead to exploitation. Always. The Lord's great angry indignation is against those who would use, abuse, and exploit the vulnerable for their own personal gain. 
And let me tell you, that thought, that idea, that truth is unique to Christianity. Culture, this is a great apologetic, by the way, culture loves to use that language, right? Stand up for the oppressed, for the vulnerable, for the minority. And we say, you're welcome. It came from the Lord. God's judgment will come against those who, as we read in Joel 3, have traded a boy for a prostitute and have sold a girl for wine and have drunk it. By the way, this pornography is built on this. Training a girl for wine. Meager rations. Uh, this is, I, say, I say all this because this is exactly what these men do, right? They have nothing better to do. All, all these rich, powerful guys have nothing better to do than to go to a, a birthday party and watch a young girl dance. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And, and we're talking young. Probably a teenager. Maybe younger, actually. But there's another feast with a bunch of men. 5,000. And it doesn't happen in a palace, but in a desert. And these aren't powerful men or powerful people. By the end of the day, they don't know if they're going to be able to go back and get food. They're not from the, the city. They're from villages. I, I tried to make a comparison like saying they're, they're not from New York, but from some town in the U.S. But if you live in any town in the U.S., you're, you're better off than 90% of the world, right? They're nobodies. You don't even know the town that they're from. And the true king sees this rabble, this crowd, and he sees something different. Not, not a people to exploit, but sheep to be nourished. This is what makes Jesus so awesome. Verse 33. Now many saw them going and recognized them. Right? They're going to rest. They've been serving people all day for weeks, going to a place to rest. Many saw them and they ran on foot. From all the towns and got there ahead of them when he went ashore. He saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. Jesus doesn't exploit them, he feeds them. First, he feeds them with his word, and he feeds them with this meal. It's, it's funny because this same word that's used for girl. Right, for Herodias' daughter is also used back right right before this in chapter five. You can even look there in chapter five, verse forty-one. Jesus goes to this guy's house. She's dead, this girl. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha Kumi, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was twelve years of age, and they were immediately overcome with amazement not exploitation not for pleasure not manipulation not using them not abusing them but serving spending nourishing and how you view other people shows if you're following in the way of the earthly king or in the way of the heavenly king Third contrast, fear versus freedom. Here, 
comes to me, in, in my mind, the greatest irony of the life of Herod. There's two kinds of people in this passage that Herod fears. He, we're told he fears John the Baptist, right? He feared him. But he also fears his very own dinner guests. The people he invites to his party, he's afraid of them. Look, look at verse 22. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, ask me for whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, for what should I ask? And she said, the head of John the Baptist. And by the way, Herod's making this offer not to be generous, but because he's, he's wanting to impress his dinner guests. Right? I give you up to half my kingdom. It's a, an offer meant to impress. In verse 25, she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. Verse 26, and the king was exceedingly sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. It's funny that, that here Mark in his writing, he's, he's not referring to Herod by name anymore. He re- refers to him as the king. The, the king was exceedingly sorry because we're to see what a sorry state this king is in. Because here's the thing. Herod has wealth. Herod has power, but he does not have freedom. This is the tyranny of worldliness. Worldliness promises to give you everything you want. You can get money, you can get pleasure, you can get power, but at the end of the day, you end up a slave. Herod is a slave to his fear of man. Herod is a slave to his passions. This is why I do not envy the rich and the famous and the powerful, because those things are nothing but slave drivers. Instagram influencers post images of absolute freedom, traveling the world, being fit, making money. But the person behind the curtains is almost always in chains because they're in chains to the likes and the adoration of the crowd. One of my favorite classic rock songs, The Animals by The Animals, House of the Rising Sun. That's a great song. And that guy has impressive vocal range. It's a song about gambling, and he says at the end, I'm going back to New Orleans to wear that ball and chain. This is the tyranny of worldliness and the fear of man. We go back to it time and again. But it is simply a ball and chain. Our culture has a fear problem. We have a problem of fear in our culture. We have, we have our, our culture has, has written its own apocalypse. There's a day when the earth's climate will change so bad it will be doomed for us all. I'm not making a statement about global warming per se. I think climate change is real. But we've created this cultural image where we have an apocalypse and we have to do whatever we can. We must repent to keep it from happening. You see the difference, I hope. We also have a fear of elections. 
You ever heard of the Flight 93? If we don't win this one, we're doomed. Oh, we're a fearful people. This, this happens on the left and the right. Guys, we, none of us are immune to the tyranny of fear. It's worth noting that John, though he was literally in prison, was actually free. Where Herod, who was not, was in chains. This is what is so interesting about where these feasts take place. Herod's is a rich, royal banquet in a palace. Jesus and his disciples are in a desert. It's interesting that that word, verse 31, desolate place. Verse 32, desolate place. Verse 35, desolate place. Because it's the same kind of location where the Spirit drives Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted. There's no bread. And it's the same language that's used of the Israelites wandering in the wilderness. There's no bread. Place known for its lack. Its poverty of nutrients. But under King Jesus, it is not chains that determine if you are free. And it is not lack that determines limit. Whoever the Son sets free is free indeed. In prison, you're free. In a desert, you're at a banquet. Jesus throws a party in the desert. Taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all. Come, all you who are thirsty, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. You see, Jesus turns freedom on its head. With Herod, there is feast yet poverty. With Jesus, there is poverty yet feast. Again, it is ironic because this passage has to do with discipleship, following Jesus and following the true king. In following this king, you may end up in prison. In following this king, you may end up in a desolate place. In following this king, you might even lose your life, which, hello, John the Baptist literally does here. But don't for a second fall for illegitimate kings who offer phony promises of life. This king is the only king who can give life. And that's our last contrast, death versus life. Earlier, earlier I talked about how Herod is a, is a consumer. He's, he's turned inward and he has to consume. He depletes, he takes, and for all his wealth and abundance, he must have more. Verse 27, and immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl, and the girl gave it to her mother. All this because he had to have a birthday party. All this because he had to have a teenage girl dance for him. The worldly king 
can only bring about death. But the heavenly king dispenses life. Verse 42. And they all ate and were satisfied. Isn't that just a life word? You have a synonym for life, satisfied. Herod, out of his abundance, takes. Jesus, out of poverty, gives. Herod, a false king, takes life. Jesus, the true king, gives life. A contrast of kings representing two paths, human death or human flourishing. The point of this is to show the great satisfaction there is in following Jesus. Look, Mark, this is, he, Jesus talks about this in, in Mark 8, verse 35. For whoever w- would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the Gospels will save it. What a, what a marvelous paradox. You can try to keep your life and hoard and consume and you can exploit and, and fear, but you will lose everything trying to keep it. But if you just give it up, you find it. Even as Jesus calls us to costly, life-denying discipleship, we are to see that He is the Lord of life, though He calls us to die. I've, I've seen this before, and I see it more frequently, but people talking about multiple paths to human flourishing. And, and by God's grace, humans can flourish and be happy in the gifts that He gives and how He provides by His grace, even to people who don't believe. But ultimately, all other paths drain us. Though they tell us to fill ourselves up. Jesus fills us even as He calls us to drain ourselves empty. Every other worldly Lord will say, give more, 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 more for yourself, only to leave you empty. But Jesus says, give me all that you are, and you will find that you have everything you need. Worldliness is a tyrant. You can consume not thinking about how you consume, how you take. You can try to manipulate people. You can exploit. You can wage war out of fear. But you will never, ever be filled. Or, or you can die. And in dying, you can live. Throw off the shackles, and run, run to the living King Jesus who will give you life now. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you are the King of life and we need not be in a place for you to be the Lord of life. We 
need not come to you sinless. We need not come to you innocent. We need not come to you righteous. We need not come to you powerful. We need not come to you wealthy. We need not come to you happy. We don't need to be a certain way, a certain person, or at a certain situation to come to you for life. You came for sinners, for the depleted, for the guilty, not for the righteous. Lord Jesus, you are the Lord of life. Forgive us when we go to worldly kings for life because we have found them to be so empty, so wanting, so draining. Give us life in your name, Lord Jesus. Give us life. In your glorious name we pray. Amen.